Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. These candid, unfettered talks create connection and inspiration across the human story. These are the sharings of how we came to be ourselves, how we found our life's purpose, and how we made it from there to here. I speak with performers, artists, artisans, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and other remarkable people about what they do and how they came to do it. Also, the music you hear on this show is performed, as always, by Brad Watson. Today I speak with intrepid BBC correspondent and international man of mystery, David Willis. We talk about his early days in England as an only child, working on obituaries in Hertfordshire, joining the BBC, working as a foreign correspondent in Southeast Asia, becoming the BBC's California correspondent, embedding with U.S. Marines during the Iraq War, taking a scholarly break at Oxford University, exploring the acting bug, becoming a U.S. citizen, and remaining a contented Angelino. <laughs> Delightful and hilarious. I hope you enjoy. I sure did. Muttley, David's English Bulldog, confirms that all stories are, in fact, true. Here's me and David and Muttley and Jack. Here we go. Hello there, David Willis, old thing. It's so good Dana, to see you. how are you? How are you? It's a long way from the coffee bean and tea leaf, isn't it? It, it certainly is. And it's really, <laughs> really good to see you. Even though Likewise. it's just on the screen. Just on the screen. Likewise. Absolutely. Fantastic to see you too. Well, and I wanted to... So as you know, conversations from here are kind of um, a bit of a, 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 a story of lives. Um, so I wanted to go back all the way to, uh, to, to the UK. And um, you, I, I know that you have connections to, to Suffolk and Essex, but were you actually yes. born in London? Uh, yes, I was born in London um, at St. Thomas's Hospital, which is just across the river um, from Westminster. And it is within the sound of bow bells uh -huh. and I don't know if that means anything but that actually means that you're a cockney right. so I should cockney. really be going hello mate apples and pears frog and toad dog and bone but <laughs> I don't do that I don't think anybody does that now but apparently it stems you are a very knowledgeable woman you would probably know this but um um if you're born within the the sound of bow bells you are a cockney right. and bow is a part of east london and there's a church there and you know and, 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 and chimes the bell chimes and if they can hear it 
from right. where you're born, you're strictly speaking a Cockney. It's and they Saint can. Mary Lebeau. Saint Mary Lebeau. Oh, that's right. My God, you see, you know much more about this than I do. And they can hear them from St Thomas's Hospital. So there you go. That's me. You, you're, you're kind of a failed Cockney, though. You're, you're not. I am. Well, actually, I. Have, I well, I, I sound more English. Let me see. I've been here twenty years now, and I sound more English now. I think than I did when I came here. Well, if we do this again in five years' time, I'll probably be saying, would you like a spot of tea, Archbishop? Hello, how awfully nice to see you. You know, it'll be ridiculous. I'll be but a caricature of myself even more than I am now. With my friend, my my aforementioned friend, Emma Pine, who's, of course, Irish from, from Ennis. Oh, I loved but your she, chat with her. She told me that she's actually more Irish living in America than she was when she was in Ireland. It's a strange I kind of revert. I heard her say that. I heard her say that. I think a lot of it is, well, um, obviously I have to keep sort of the English thing going to sound like I work for <laughs> who I work for. Uh, but, but, but also I perhaps am milking it somewhat because it's very funny, Dana. I think people tend to believe, I don't know if this is true. Maybe I'm, I'm blowing our, our own collective native trumpets uh, on this front, but I think people tend to believe what they hear if they hear it in a British accent slightly more perhaps than they really ought to. And um, somebody said to me that during the um, Gulf War, um, Tony Blair would hold news conferences alongside George W. Bush and um, people sort of believed more of what Tony Blair was saying perhaps in certain circles than they did of George W. Bush. And th 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 I've also said that um, there are people here who believe that it adds a certain amount to your perceived IQ if you have a British accent. So uh, I'm milking it for all it's worth, baby. All well, it's also, worth. The, the, also, the, the funny thing about Tony Blair is that he's actually from Manchester. Originally, yes. But he got rid of his, his Mancunian accent to take on the RP. Data, how do you know all this stuff? How do you know it's, all this stuff? It comes to me from you me. are extraordinary. <laughs> My goodness me. Do you wake up at sort of three in the morning and read British newspapers or something? It's absolutely extraordinary. I probably should. I probably should. But but uh, but Tony Blair, of course, you know, in the UK, many people would just say he's full of shite. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it's very funny, actually. Tony Blair is much more popular here than he is in the UK, where to a large extent, he's um, a somewhat uh, loathed figure. Um, but but here he moves around with impunity. Nobody tries to attack him. Uh, and people really rather kind of respect him, I think. But but, um, you know, it's the accent. Yeah, it is. I, I think Americans are just absolutely gobsmacked with British accents. And uh, and, and I think he just compare it compared to George W. Bush. God bless right, him. Right, right. You know, yes. Delta, um, yeah. Texas, you know, so kind of sound yeah. like a good old boy, you know. But um, <laughs> I have to say that I George W. Bush, for all of his you know faults and whatnot, he probably would be a great person to hang out with. He's probably oh. a lot of fun. Well, do you know what? It's so interesting you say that because there's that old thing, isn't there, that Americans will vote for the man they or woman they want to have a beer with. And of course, he doesn't drink. But um, he was arguably, uh, one could argue perhaps, more clubbable and more genial and perhaps more sort of, I don't know, the guy you want to be stuck in the elevator with than Al Gore, much as we love Al yeah, Gore. Yeah, um, I think it's probably true in terms of just being able to 
to, you know, throw out some zingers and have a relaxed, you know, fun conversation. And he was kind of a joker and all of that. Yeah, yeah. And he seems very charming now, uh, almost, almost, be almost benign in retirement, <laughs> painting yeah. away there and turning up for the occasional kind of inauguration or state funeral. I, you know, um, history, I think, will be perhaps a little kinder um, to him than it was. But, you know, history was kind to him so many people wasn't it um, but but yeah, compared but, to what we've just been through yeah well, w. Bush yeah. seems like a grandfatherly you know he does nice fella totally benign by comparison oh no i couldn't yeah. agree more <laughs> and but 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 anyway but back to you back to oh. your story <laughs> so uh within 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 earshot of of saint mary lebeau um hmm. then you um i understand that you you actually went to school in uh in in Essex, right? Well, Sussex and uh, Essex, so you might Yeah, um, um, just a little bit up, uh, uh, Suffolk um, in Ipswich, and um, that my parents were sort of incredible uh, introverts. They'd have quite liked, I think, uh, COVID-19 lockdowns. <laughs> and, and, and so by virtue of that, and being an only child, I had a sort of somewhat, I had lots of, lots of friends, but I had the, the uh, home life was somewhat solitary. And I remember thinking to myself, there's gotta be more to life than this. And the big wide world outside was, was constantly fascinating. And, and, and then I sort of fell into this thing about, you know, the, the, the old British tradition of um, the, the, the from our own correspondent, the, the, um, the foreign correspondent in, in, in strange lands. And um, there are several very romantic images of that sort of person. Um, and um, I thought, wouldn't that be a fabulous way of earning a living to uh, basically jaunt around the world and get somebody else to pay for it. And um, so from a very, very early age, I was fixated upon pursuing this sort of line of work, if you like. Now, see, that's, that's interesting that your solitary childhood is the thing that brought that because you're looking for connection right and you have this romantic idea of this and from our own correspondent bbc you know around yes and you turned I, into that guy yes i think it was also um you know this sort of bookish side of me watched a lot of television read a lot of books and thought to myself god that must be fun doing that and the appeal of journalism is that you know you can ask people very personal questions and get away with it. I mean, newspaper journalists are uh, habitually asking people their ages, which right. is something something in polite English society you should never breathe a word of, let alone that and religion, politics, a couple mm -hmm. of other things. But uh, yeah, so so it seemed to be a great way of being very nosy um, and just just a lot of fun, really. So you started as a cub reporter at the Hertfordshire Mercury? You, my goodness me, David, my goodness. Uh, I yes, I did, I did, my goodness, you're amazing. I did indeed, yes, which was um, a short-lived experience uh, doing obituaries because that's what they would do. They would send uh, people out, uh, young reporters uh, out to uh, compile obituaries, which consisted really of knocking on doors, knocking on the doors of the recently bereaved, uh, and um, and asking them impertinent questions so to compile an obituary. Uh, we we it was a weekly paper, the Harper Mercury, and um, 
I arrived in this little town. They were, they were the only people who would employ me. And I arrived in this town. And I think the first or second person I met there said, oh, you know, I explained I was going to work for the Hertfordshire Mercury. And they said, oh, the Hertfordshire Mercury is a very good newspaper. They said, nothing happens in Hertford. And the Hertfordshire Mercury reflects that. And I thought, oh, this is great. This is absolutely perfect. And then we would have this, this frenetic sort of four days trying to compile this weekly newspaper. And then on the Friday, it went to press. And we'd all sit around and, uh, and drink excessively and answer the telephone and invariably answer the telephone to complaints. And I, I answered it. Just, just before leaving there, actually, I asked it one Friday, and um, this rather irate-sounding lady uh, was on the other end saying, I'm in your newspaper this week. And I said, oh, that's nice. She said, no, it's not. Turn to page 47. And uh, I turned to page 47, or whatever it was, a lot of adverts, obviously, in that time. And, uh, and, and there was, uh, I said, what's your name, by the way? She, and she told me. And there was, a, there was her obituary. Clearly, obviously, uh, that of somebody else, um, but but her picture adorning it, and um, she said that she'd been, you know, um, absolutely inundated with phone calls and messages that morning from people who thought she was dead. Mm. So um, you the know, news it was of my demise has been uh, greatly exaggerated. That, uh, Mark Twain <laughs> yeah, exactly exaggerated. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All of which prepares oneself. Uh, very nimbly for a career in broadcast journalism, where any corrections could be rather hastily, uh, you know, put together and, and, and put out there. We had to wait for another week, unfortunately, to relieve this poor woman's suffering. So she had to be dead for another week before we, she, she revived again. She, she, had to, she had to wait seven days to be resuscitated <laughs> in print. It was, it was absolutely shocking, absolutely shocking. I don't even know, you know, it's interesting, Dave, I don't even know if that newspaper still exists. I, I, um, uh, I hope it does, but uh, so many of those um, local newspapers in England, I suppose, much like the rest of the world, are now digital or, um, or maybe right, not or even no in existence or no longer, yeah. They may yeah. have been eaten by a, a, a conglomerate or something and just you know, right. be, or, or they may have become like a monthly newsletter instead of a yes. newsletter or something yes. due to staff cuts. Oh, yes. We actually used to sell that newspaper. I mean, people used to pay to read it. It seems unfathomable, unfathomable now. Um, but, um, you know, I'm sure if it does exist, bless it, there's a, a, a really, really spanking online version. That, uh, we I, we oh, can delve into great. to find out all that's not going on in Hartford. But then, so then, how did you how did you finally uh, realize the dream and and get connected with the oh. BBC? Oh, that's a good uh, question. I went to I I, I went uh, via the long route, um, the scenic route, and so I went into commercial local radio very quickly because there was somebody I knew that was setting up a. Um, uh, by the way, do you have a, the phrase here, anorak? Do you, do you, do you oh, know what that phrase means? Uh, I, I know of the anorak, the pullover uh, weather, yeah, yeah. Like foul weather gear, the anorak, but I don't know right. else about it. I think maybe somewhat stemming from that piece of apparel, um, the term in England has been taken to um, um, define uh, groups of people who are fixated on particular things. Um, it, I think, started with train spotters. I don't think you have train spotters in, in the United States, but- We have um, plane uh, spotters here. Plane but spotters, ah. There, there oh. are some train spotters here. It is a there, thing. There are? Oh, interesting. Well, well, in England, 
sad people that we are, there are people uh, who will go out and, uh, oh, I haven't seen that like about it before, and uh, write it down in their little notebooks and so on and so forth. They were known as the anorites. But then the term was spread to, you know, include people who are fixated, as I say, with other things. And I, I suppose, was an anorak as far as broadcast media was concerned. I at one stage wanted to be a disc jockey and uh, I spent a little bit of time going, eh, there you go, 25 N3 quarters for the hour, telecloc sensations and, um, and, um, and doing all that stuff. And then I realized, you know what? I think that could get a bit boring actually after a while playing other people's records. So um, being a broadcast journalist seemed to make more sense. So I went to this commercial radio station, then I went to a BBC local radio station, then a BBC regional uh, TV station and thence to London for any job that uh, I could get and thence eventually to become a foreign correspondent, which I did about uh, starting in 1993, I think, in uh, Southeast Asia. Wow. And then and then you were that, that's quite a leap from from obituary. <laughs> yes. To yes. yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's very strange, actually. The BBC has been an amazing employer and I, I'm trying to find some wood to touch here, oh, there's some touch wood, um, um, because they, 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 it's a broad church, it's, it's a huge organization, as you know, and they have all these channels and stuff like that. And every time I was sort of getting bored, they, they would, something else would pop up within the same organization. So the singular lack of imagination, I, I've never left there. Um, I've just kept going from one thing to another. But um, but they they'd be very nice. They sent me overseas and stuff like that. I'm not very good at what I do, but but they they didn't seem to mind. They didn't seem There was something I had read that you had covered the Suharto regime changeover. Yeah, yeah, that was all from Southeast Asia. Yeah, it was a well. I, it's funny because they um, the, the the guy who ran the news gathering operation for the BBC. It was quite a big operation even to this day. Um, um, uh, I had uh, gone out on my own volition to um, to Thailand for a little bit because I was quite I was getting itchy feet and I wanted to go abroad. And in those days, from nine, early nineties, it was very much dead man's shoes, um, and I mean that literally. You'd have to wait for somebody to die, or expire, or have a massive cardiac arrest uh, whilst they were filing a piece um, from the field before you you know a vacancy arose. And so. I thought I can't. I, you know, this is ridiculous. I, I, I you know, I, 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 there must be an easier way. So I found a place. You have to kill like, someone. <laughs> well, exactly. I, I don't trust me, Dana. It crossed my mind on occasion. Uh, but uh, I, I realized that there was a very old guy in Thailand, based in Bangkok, called Neil Kelly. Bless his cotton socks. Who um, was a little, well. I don't think he was the most um, active. He was an older man, bless him. And, you know, he, he wasn't, you know. And I thought there were lots of stories in Thailand, particularly stories about Brits, as we call them um, colloquially in the trade, Brits in the shit. Um, so Brits who would go That's out there to Thailand, you know, oh, God forbid, sex tourists, um, um, uh, drug peddlers, all sorts of, you know, the flotsam and jetsam of British life, tends to end up uh, in places like Thailand. Um, uh, you know, doing nefarious things. And I thought there's gotta be lots of stories. So perhaps I could support myself as a freelance. And anyway, I went out there for a few months. And then at the end of that period, the, the guy who was running the news operation um, called me into his office in London. And he said, look, you know, the guy who's taken over as 
director general has got this bee in his bonnet about the tiger economies of Southeast Asia. And he said, frankly, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. He said, but these are, you know, he thinks that these are things that we ought to be covering. So he said, look, you know, you should go out to Singapore. And he said, well, six months, give you six months in Singapore. He said, it's going to be an absolute disaster. You'll never get anything on the air, trust me. But, you know, you can sit out there and, and have a nice time and, and you know, um, eat some eat some noodles and um and i said that sounds great yeah yeah well, well, bring it on so anyway i went out to singapore with this um, rather understated expectation and there was a man called nick leeson who was a, a, a trader and he worked at bearings bank in singapore now bearings bank was the queen's bank and um he went rogue as rogue traders tend to do. <laughs> and he, he, he got himself in too deeply and he basically made all these um, uh, rather ill-advised deals and they ended up, the, the, the whole um, bank ended up going tits up. And then he fled and he's based in Singapore. He's a Brit based in Singapore. Brit uh, <laughs> and, and, and it was on my doorstep. And all of a sudden, um, within about a month of turning up in Singapore, I was at the center of the, what was, you know, as far as the English press was concerned, the biggest story in the universe. I chased this man around. I actually ended up going back with him on, on the plane, which is another story altogether. But anyway, so, um, so and then it was one thing after another and, and, and the, the stories just kept on coming. It was a very lucky period. And so the six months came to an end. I don't think I did a single story about Asian tiger economies, but the whole thing came to an end. And, and they said, well, the guy, who sent me this, well, you better stay, hadn't you? And, you know, otherwise I was gonna have a gap there. And um, that was the start of four years. Uh, we, and the patch was, you know, it was Singapore and Thailand, Southeast Asia. And then it expanded um, to really take in South Asia and Australia, and Australasia and so on and so forth. And I remember coming back from one holiday and the phone was ringing because these were the days in which we had phones that rang, you know, on, on, on deaths, on deaths, I mean. And I, I just got in the door and picked up the phone. And they, uh, they said, oh, um, uh, Mike, Mick Hutchins from NXS has killed himself in a hotel uh, in Sydney, Australia. Uh, you need to go to the airport, get on the next plane. And, and so, you know, rapidly the patch expanded i think i was covering about two-thirds of the world by the time <laughs> by the time it finished the sun um, is not set on david Willis. exactly exactly but anyway so so that was glorious really it was a lovely lovely time and um i had a lot of fun and it, it's still it's such a gorgeous part of the world but there are lots of stories there lots and lots of stories and particularly big stories Involving Brits in the ship because you know we're we're a, a naughty bunch. We we still get up to mischief. <laughs> well, and and also the other thing is that in in you're you're able to bring this other part of the world because very much the news tends to be in America and Britain and Europe. It's Western centric. Very true. Very to, true. You know, so very you true. to kind of bring the other side of the globe to light. For very us. very true. And, and you know, one had to. Really, because, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of, when you are in that situation, you're, you're pitching, you're sort of selling stories, in a sense. You're selling stories because, you know, um, to, to a news desk that's awash 
with, with them coming in from Reuters and AFP and AP. So, um, you, you, you know, to get that sort of English twist on something, that's why I, I mentioned the Brits and the shit stories, because in a sense, they are the sort of things that can easily get on the air, you know, they're, they're, they're the stories that rise to the top, if you like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The cream, so to speak. Well, yes. <laughs> cream, yes. the sludge. Yes. <laughs> the, the, the sludge, the sludge that comes to the top. But uh, it was very lovely. And then after that, um, I came here in 2000, or went to the US, to Los Angeles. And, um, and I've been here ever since, really. And I, 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 think, I think I'll probably die here. Hopefully not that soon. <laughs> So you skirted, you skirted the Pacific Rim and came around. I did. I did. The Ring of Fire, Dana. I, <laughs> I, I embraced the Ring of Fire and I, I end up here. And, um, you know, a lot of it's, you know, sort of covering the Oscars but, and stuff like that. But, but, you know, it was funny because within, oh, I don't know, I came here in 2000 and then... There was the war in Iraq, of course, which is, what was it? Um, 2003? Was it 2002? Was it end of, beginning of 2002, was it? And uh, for, sure. for some reason- 2002, it started. Yeah, that makes sense. And for some reason, I think because of um, the fact that we've all seen as highly dispensable, um, a lot of the British-based news organizations deployed to Iraq from Los Angeles. I think they, all these news editors must have thought, I'm sure independently that, you know, oh, he's, all he's doing is, you know, poncing around in a uh, tuxedo for a couple of days a year. Um, we wouldn't really miss him if he was, uh, you know, <laughs> if he's been blown up. So let's send him off to this, uh, to the war zone. And I ended up with a bunch of British journalists, Times and Independent and various others, who'd all been sent from Los Angeles, so go figure. And this um, is, you were embedded with the U.S. Marines? But embedded with a, a bunch of 18-year-olds from Camp Pendleton um, and uh, who were all very gung-ho, I have to say. Um, and I remember actually doing um, the, the closest thing that the BBC had in those days to um, some sort of preparedness um, course, which was um, a week of Fort Benning in Georgia and having to get up early in the morning to get onto the parade ground and, uh, and and run around going train to kill kill we will, uh, uh, which which anybody who knows me would regard as completely and utterly absurd, um, but anyway, so so off we went and um, I have to say that um, war reporting is every bit as 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 thrilling and I'm not for um, I'm not for any uh, for a second seeking to aggrandize a war. But um, I have to say, the thrill of reporting a war from the front line is an absolute adrenaline high, the likes of which um, is very difficult to replicate. Well, and during that time, of course, um, you know, uh, th this, I mean, it, so you've got these young kids that you're embedded with. At the same time, I'm sure that you know, as, as much as they were young, and I'm sure that, but the, you know, did, did they save your bacon from time? Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one particular occasion, um, when we came under some fire, um, round by, Saddam Hussein was thought to have commandeered. Uh, he had, in those days, a lot of palaces. He had palaces dotted all over the place. And apparently, 
word had it that they were all fully staffed and that every night they would prepare a meal for him. Um, in, case uh, so, in case he happened to stop by that particular palace. So all over uh, Iraq, uh, meals were being prepared <laughs> for, for this dictator. But uh, um, um, we were, we got word that he was holed up in one of these places and went out there with the Marines with whom we were embedded. And um, they got involved, or we all got involved in a rather nasty firefight. Well, I say I got involved, I, I was absolutely useless, but um, but but um, they, they, they were very good, I have to say. Uh, but we were there for rather too long being shot at, uh, which is not an experience I would recommend, but um, it, was, it was interesting in hindsight. There were a lot of people, I was gonna say, there were a lot of people who signed up, of course, after 9-11, Oh, yes. One. And so there were a lot of young people who wouldn't ordinarily have gone into the service, but were inspired to go. Absolutely. Um, so I imagine that there were a lot of gung ho young kids with very large guns, you know, <laughs> wanting to get out there and have that experience. Oh, but um, uh, do, you feel, do you feel that they were giving you the real story as opposed to taking you somewhere that was maybe not where the action was, but something else? Did you feel that what you were being shown was accurate? I Well, I think what we got was, um, we got, you know, they, they couldn't obviously censor what we saw. Right. Um, they could censor what they told us. And um, they, uh, I was with a, a captain who was not particularly um, delighted to have press people with him and wasn't especially communicative. He did just about the bare minimum in terms of, um, uh, passing on bits of information, but but nonetheless, we we saw and experienced um, uh, quite a lot, and there was no problem with me um, obviously broadcasting that um, and and conveying it. And it was just actually around about the time we were just starting to get the sort of technical equipment that is now de rigueur, really. Uh, these tiny little recording devices, they weren't so tiny then, but certainly bits of equipment that meant that we could broadcast effectively using a sort of Wi-Fi-ish type of thing, that we didn't need a satellite mm -hmm. connection uh, necessarily. Um, and so that was really revolutionary in a way. And although it was still touch and go um, in terms of getting stuff back, getting a signal back and so on and so forth, we were actually able to go live um, from the battlefield um, on many occasions because of this super duper new technology, which of course is now absolutely obsolete, probably in the Smithsonian Museum, but uh, at the time was right, right on the cusp, you know, it was amazing. And that and that and that was uh, and how long were you embedded? Um, I think the war. I think that well, the, the whole war itself. I think was pretty quick, wasn't it? It was a matter of weeks. And I was out there from start to finish, from uh, arriving in Kuwait, waiting, and then um, shambling back into the hotel in Kuwait, having lost several pounds of weight, um, uh, probably from six weeks I would say for the whole thing but I remember the the actual invasion itself going from Kuwait to Baghdad was very very swift um, the 
Marines with whom I was embedded encountered very little opposition from the uh, Iraqi Revolutionary Guard. Well, and I think a lot of those people too were just kind of, you know, just people who were doing what they were told that they weren't, their hearts weren't in it. Yeah, absolutely. Just out of fear of Saddam, basically. Absolutely. You know, but I, I think that's true. Um, I remember hearing a story about some Iraqi um, army guys who encountered some Americans that they ended up surrendering to. And they, they described the Americans as being as big as football players with all this tech, all this gear. Oh, yeah. On, and they had like oh, yeah. ragged uniforms and barely any shoes that fit. Yes, you know? uh, that's the, the contrast. That is, uh, from my recollection, a very, very accurate characterization. I remember actually, Dana, um, it was nearly, um, uh, those uh, firefights notwithstanding, it was actually American troops that nearly killed me in the end, or came closest to killing me, uh, when right towards the end of the whole thing, um, the Palestine Hotel was the nerve center of all the media operations for those who were broadcasting throughout the war from Baghdad. Mm -hmm. And um, I, myself and the cameraman with, with whom I was embedded, we, we got to understand that we were sort of on the outskirts of Baghdad and I, I, we had some quite good material. And so I thought the best way of doing this was actually make it across town to the Palestine Hotel. <laughs> where there was satellite communication and everything like that and infrastructure uh, far superior to, to what we had and um i remember sort of going across this the, the war was still raging going across baghdad uh, it's absolutely ridiculous um a half-baked scheme that i had but anyway um i had um, a satellite phone which was a large device in those days um and um they, the American troops were very concerned about people with satellite phones because there were a lot of Iraqis who apparently were identifying um, the locations of American troops to snipers. Mm. So the uh, the satellite phone was seen as a you know um, an instrument of war, and I had one in my possession and was on the phone. I was in the back of a car, um, being driven by a very charming Iraqi gentleman who didn't speak a word of English and. I don't speak a word of Arabic. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be rather clever if I used a satellite phone and I got through to the BBC World Service, which is, um, as I mentioned, a broad church. And I would there, I would instantly find somebody who spoke Arabic and I could communicate with them in English and they, I'd pass the phone over to the driver who I could then instruct to please take me to the Palestine Hotel. But unfortunately we came up against this roadblock before this conversation took place. And the American troops hauled me out of the car and some uh, rookie had his uh, gun to the back of my neck and was demanding that I hand over the phone. And um, I instantly became extremely British. And, um, and, and <laughs> my dear fellow, my dear fellow, we put that gun down immediately. I wish to, speak to your commanding officer. And uh, I eventually managed to persuade this man that I was for the BBC and um, and they they called the dogs off. But um, uh, it was a, a bit of a close shave for a while because he was, um, this young soldier was a bit kind of trigger happy, I suspect. Uh -huh.
Did you ever meet, um, I'm not, I'm not going to get her last name right, but uh, was it Marie, Marie Conlon? Marie Colvin, Colvin. Oh, I have not, but um, it's very funny. Many of my colleagues have, and her name came up in conversation just the other day. I was talking to some old hacks and we were, we were talking about her. Oh, I know. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We were talking about her in the contest. Apparently she... Uh, is a very, very brave, very well-connected woman who, um, uh, by all accounts, didn't write that, that much. She, she sort of apparently dictated her copy in the form of a sort of stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And uh, sub-editors and people on the foreign desk actually kind of arranged it then into, you know, uh, readable prose. But it was more for the nature of her contacts and her bravery that she became, you know, the, the, the superstar reporter that she, she was. And telling the stories of ordinary people who were right. caught in. A absolutely. She was in, she was in uh, Syria, in homes in Syria. It was her last location. And she was reporting on these people who had been bombarded for months and months and months and months and trying to get the word out. There are women and children here who are are, are completely at the mercy of, yes. of this army that's coming, you know, and uh, and that's and they targeted her. They amazing her. stuff. Absolutely amazing stuff. She 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 really was a legend and you know um uh, you know a lot is made of a woman in a war zone, but she was better than most men um in, in that job. And she had um, she had an Irish um, photographer uh, who was he survived the attack and was rescued and he is alive today to tell her story. Oh really? But oh, my goodness. the thing about how she had an eye patch, you know, she had had her eye shot out. I think, yes. Um, in actually in um, in Sri Lanka, um, her eye had been shot out, and they said, "Why don't you just get a glass eye?" And she says, "Are you kidding?" <laughs> you know, I mean, I want to look like a pirate, you know, I want to be <laughs> badass, you know, so, so she always had a, a patch, a leather patch over her, over her eye, her destroyed eye. Oh my her, goodness. Her I did. That got shot at her. That's, a, I did not know that story. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. It's very um, interesting, actually, because there are people who are drawn back to war zones time and again. And I, you know, there's been, some of this has been characterized in um, fiction as well, but um, people who almost um, can't survive or don't want to survive in ordinary society, it's just too dull uh, yeah. when they've had that constant, uh, you know, a blast of adrenaline on a daily basis. And um, I encountered many of these people in, in various places, e even in places like Cambodia, which is slipped off the news agenda, but but there are people who are drawn to these places and for them it's it's home no matter what you know conflict or disaster it is they're covering. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well I think you've hit you've you've hit upon it. It's the adrenaline rush and uh, Marie Colvin talked about that, about how, you know, I mean how can you just live an ordinary life it's so dull there's no right. there's no purpose like for her it was getting the word out about the story that needs to be told and absolutely and all that and and um and she was an american working for the sunday times 
in the yes. UK. And, you know, this glamorous sort of, you know, personality and amazing character. And I think you do have to be a sort of character to be living that life because oh, a regular absolutely. person would just not, they would, they would crumble in those circumstances. No. No. And also the toll it takes on any sort of family life. It's a really, um, you know, I mean, I, let me see, I did it uh, for many years at a much more modest level than that of Marie Colvin, but I, you know, have uh, no wife, no kids. Um, you know, I have Muttley. Um, <laughs> I am a sad, washed up. No, I'm not. Uh, but uh, uh, you have but a bulldog. No, no. That's all there is. I, I have a bulldog. Anything else doesn't matter. <laughs> I have a bulldog, and I have a very hot girlfriend. But uh, but uh, <laughs> no. uh, but but uh, yeah. It, it. I. I suppose where I'm going with this is it does. You know, you have to be very committed to that sort of thing. It really does take a toll on any sort of normal family life because no partner in their right mind is going to come and join you, um, right. especially for any length of time, in a war zone. Um, so it's, you know, it is a sacrifice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then didn't later in 2003, you went to uh, on a Reuters fellowship to Oxford University? Yes, that was just after the war. And um, that was because I thought uh, I deserved a break. Uh, <laughs> no, I thought, well, that's partly true. I thought, yeah, just a, a bit of a break. And um, I, of course, I've been living here. So I thought to myself, you know what? Um, it's a three month kind of, uh, you know, a um, uh, uh, bit of fun. And, um, you know, an Oxford University. I never went, I never went to university. So um, I, I went straight from what we call A-levels in England into journalism because I was um, uh, pretty pretty stupid, but but also pretty pretty uh, keen on journalism, and and I wanted to get into it as quickly as possible. Um, but the thought then of sort of mid career going to a place like Oxford, albeit for three months, for a, a bit of a holiday, um, struck me as just too good to miss out on. So, so I did that for three months. It was glorious. It was, it was so much fun. You could be among the dreaming spires. <laughs> yes. And it yeah. is It is a, a dreamy place and so it, beautiful. It is. And it just reminded me, Dana, of how appalling the English weather is um, and, the, and the food. The beer was very cheap, I might add, at Oxford because it was all, it's all, I don't know if it is now, but it was all subsidized in those days. The bar was subsidized. But uh, yeah, no, no, there's so much about English life and I love England, but there's so much about it that's totally appalling. Um, the weather chief amongst it and the dentistry, of course. But yes, well, I'm less, sure it's improved somewhat. Less said about that, the better. <laughs> I had to leave, I was the only one with straight teeth. I had to get out of there. <laughs> you had your, you brought your California teeth. Yeah, I did, I've got California teeth, I have to admit. I, I've had, yeah, there was a work done on that front. And then, so, and what was your course of study that you did while at Oxford on your three-month little sabbatical? I I did a, um, uh, or to, to call it a thesis would be uh, uh, vastly yeah. over, overstating it. It was you had to you had to put in a bit of work at the end of the three months just to prove that you hadn't had a complete and utter jolly. And I I did something about um, George W. Bush and 
um, the war, a more war reporting. I can't remember exactly what it was. That's how mm -hmm. that's how much beer I drank. Um, but it was it was you know it was fun, and there's lots of very bright people there. I don't know what they oh, do yeah. all day. I think they just sit around reading and mm. uh, and thinking deep thoughts. And it's it was a bit of a culture shock, really, because journalism is obviously a very sort of hands-on thing, particularly in the field. You've got to be there, you've got to do it, you've got to talk to people and so on and so forth. And it seemed um, a rather ethereal kind of world, these people sitting around thinking deep thoughts, um, you know, all day. Um, but anyway, um, it, was, it, was, it was very nice, very nice contrast. Well, and to be immersed in these, surrounded by this architecture from, you know, oh, yeah. 13th, 14th, 15th century, Absolutely. College. Um, yes. But well, I, I remember going there and just and and my mom and I were had been fans of the Inspector Morse mystery. Oh yes, of um, course. Yes, and so my mom. Of course. At the time, I had been there before, but my mom had not, and we went, and so I, you know, we went tootling around all the all the colleges and whatnot, and and she was entranced in the Bodleian Library. And oh, it's gorgeous. Fantastic. Absolutely gorgeous. It really is. No, no. Um, there's so much about um, England that is absolutely glorious. But, um, you know, I just hope we haven't lost our way, all this Brexit stuff and so yeah. on and so forth. Well, but, yeah, uh, that's, a, that's another that's another uh, another thing. But I did want to uh, to talk a little bit about you. You you dipped your toes into the acting thing. Yes, which is where I met dear old Brad, your uh, <laughs> other half. That, yeah. That's right. And that was really kind of a wheeze because I thought to myself, you know what, um, it might be nice to write a book at some stage. I, I'd, I'd written this thing called um, From Our Own Correspondent. The, the BBC has this weekly thing where um, uh, journalists can kind of rabbit on for about five minutes or so um, in scripted form. Um, you know, ideally perhaps explaining their own experiences, a bit of behind the scenes stuff, or perhaps some stuff that they wouldn't make it into a normal news report. And um, and I'd done a couple of those uh, tongue in cheek stuff, uh, one from Las Vegas, one from here in LA. And um, a very nice lady called Shirley Stewart rang out of the blue one day and said, you know, I'd heard the stuff that you did on Radio 4, um, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I was reminded of that old phrase, there's a book in all of us. And in many cases, that's precisely where it should stay. And so I, I said to her, I think, you know, I think, I don't know, it's an awful lot of words in a book and I don't really know that many words. And I think it sounds like a lot of work. And anyway, so she said, well, not to worry, keep in touch, you know, if you change your mind, I'm, I'll, I'll be here and I, you know, maybe we could get some sort of publishing deal. Anyway, so I, I thought after a bit, I thought, well, that's not a bad idea, is it really? Um, maybe I could write a book, but what would I write about? And, you know, everything that's been written, I don't have any searing insight. Hello. Uh, my girlfriend's just turned up. Say hello to Dana. Hello. This is Rebecca. Hello. Dana here. Dana's recording this. Dana is actually um, very kindly, uh, Dana, Rebecca's very kindly bought me a mocha. I'm so sorry. Uh, we're, uh, you, you must we're, keep them refreshed and caffeinated. <laughs> oh, oh, she does. Oh, she does. She does. I'm just, I'm just boring Dana about my life. Oh, are you just being recorded? Yes, yes I am. Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good to meet you. Thank you.
Yeah, so, sorry, where were we? Um, oh, oh yeah, oh that's right, sorry, so I got, let's go back on that. So you're gonna, yeah, yeah, that's right. So so I I thought, what would I write about? So, you know, it would be a book about um, Los Angeles perhaps, but you know, many people, much more knowledgeable, intellectual and erudite than me have written books about Los Angeles. Um, there's no point in writing, doing something like that. So. I thought, you know what, maybe something that might sell is this kind of Brit has a go, falls flat on face story. Mm-hmm. And so I thought to myself, why don't I try preposterous notion as it, it, as it would be to make some sort of go of it in Hollywood in, in, in an acting type way. And um, so I took six months off, which actually became nine months to embark on this ridiculous caper, which is where I met Daryl Brad. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm still in the process of turning it into a book, actually. <laughs> uh, but but that, was, that was that. So, so it was basically, I had no particular desire nor, nor to have a talent to be an actor, but I just thought, oh, you know what? Trying to make it as one might yield a few good tales. Um, and, and it turned out it did, you know, I, I met Brad and yeah. I met some wonderful people in the course of doing it. Um, many of whom have gone on to better things. And, um, you know, it, it, it was fabulous, fabulous experience. And it, it taught me so much about Los Angeles and the people who are here and, and the wonderful um, uh, spirit that I suppose they exhibit in just keeping going in the face of so much constant rejection uh, amongst other things even you know I mean I'm talking about the successful people now sure. <laughs> um, it, you know the, the the human spirit is quite indomitable and and I met many of these people who were just extraordinary really for a whole variety and, of reasons and in your own training through these because you took workshops and classes mm. and things like that these mm. things are directly applicable to everything you do in life Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's amazing. Like, I mean, I have training from years ago and I use it all the time. I'm using it right, right now. I, absolutely. You know, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's how you express yourself. It's how you are present in the world. How you present is, is everything. Absolutely. You know? So, so um, I, I, I think that everyone, everyone and their cat should take uh, an acting class or a voice class. So yes. valuable. Yes. I love the improv. I did some um, mm-hmm. some improv. I, you know, I hasten to add, I, I was um, terrible at all of these things. I mean, spectacularly bad. But but I I, I thought the improv was amazing. Um, I did some stand up comedy, um, which I think um, requires enormous enormous courage because, you know, I did some scenes, for example, with Dear Brad, and you know, I can't remember. I'm, I'm, way too old to remember anything. I don't know how people remember Shakespeare, by the way. I mean, but, but you know, simple <laughs> lines, I could barely remember, I was so bad. And, you know, you were doing a scene with somebody like Brad who would, who would come in and help you out, you know, yeah. who, would, who, who, would, who would get you out of a corner when you, you know, but with stand-up comedy, there's nobody, nobody there but you. And I'm absolutely full of admiration for these people who, who can do it. And you hear of these people who hone their craft in, um, uh, you know, the, these, these smaller venues and tell the same joke 
um, time after time to get the pacing right, the wording right, and all this sort of thing. My, it, it's extraordinary, Dana, absolutely extraordinary. And um, I'm so lucky to, you know, rub shoulders with some of the, the people at the, um, you know, making their way up at that time in that well, sort of field. I did stand up for about a year and a half. And, and the, the thing that I learned so much about, I did it because, not necessarily because I wanted to be a comic, but because it seemed to me to be exactly that, the hardest thing you can do. You have your own material. You have nothing but a microphone for protection. Absolutely. And, and you just go and it's your, yeah. your thing. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, sink or swim. And yeah. there's no feeling better than when it goes well. Oh, absolutely. That, absolutely. And no worse that. feeling than when right. it goes badly. Dying. And, and I, I realized, I, I think I realized particularly that I could never, ever make it in, in that field because it seemed to me that the smartest people had about three different routines that they could, in a very mentally agile way, transition from one to the other, depending on the crowd, depending on the mood and the way things were going. And there's no way I could ever, ever dream of that. I, I had a few uh, good nights, I might add, with um, a rather, uh, rather corny uh, routine. Um, but then one night of spectacular failure around about two o'clock in the morning, where even somebody I never met advised me, to give it up so i thought you know that's 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 all the indication you need i'm so sorry somebody's mowing the lawn outside i don't, oh, don't no know if you, tell if you can hear that but, but uh, you know the other thing is that do you feel that even having that the the, the time in which you practice this or doing stand-up or doing especially the improv do you find hmm. that it that it it improved or changed your delivery when you were because were you were oh totally you delivering on on TV absolutely oh absolutely absolutely yeah. and you realize as well I mean you know writing a good um, radio or TV script um, is um, it has to at its best it has to trip off the tongue mellifluously but but also it, it has to be a little bit of poetry in a way and i, and I, I know that sounds self-aggrandizing but but to 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 work nicely but all the words have to be in the right order um uh, there's the that obvious thing of facts as well but but the, the words have to be in the right order but and and sound right to the ear ideally and that was very very much something that i took away from from doing stand-up particularly. Mm -hmm. I think there's there's definitely something about um, uh, being in the trenches, <laughs> being up there and and also the more you do it, the more you're able to, some, some people are really skilled at crowd work and they're able to just right. even right. go up there with very little or a very loose set in mind, but be working the crowd and then interspersing their material and working with, and that ability is, that's magic. That's, that's a special It really skill. is. You know, it and then really there are is. some people who are very good at remembering their particular thing and just delivering. And it's funny because it's the writing is spot on and, and whatnot. But what I find one of the things is that getting out of your own way and being able to be relaxed and being yourself is once you're able to do that, then your natural funny comes out. Right, right. You know? it, it, uh, it, I, I don't know why 
anybody does it for a living. It's absolutely nerve-wracking. Um, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. It's your... Mutley, Mutley is doing something. What, where is he? He's doing something, <laughs> doing something absurd. I can hear him scratching away. I'm so sorry. Hold on. Is he, he, me... Oh, he's on the other side of the door. I'm so sorry. Here he is. Sorry, sorry. He, 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 um, I'm sorry. He was scratching away on the other side of the door. Bulldog. Yes, exactly. I'm so sorry. Here he is. Um, sorry oh, about that. He's he back now. Um, yeah. So, sorry. Uh, um, okay. I'll pick that up again. I'll pick that up again so you can notice it. I have no idea why people, uh, I mean, I admire them immensely. Why anybody would do that for a living? It's just nerve wracking. Absolutely nerve wracking. And um, I, yeah. I just couldn't do it. I don't have the I don't have the mental architecture to do it. It's really it, it's confounding to me. And then and then you uh, you did the almost unthinkable thing in in 2019. You became an American citizen. I did. Yes, absolutely. Which which is amazing, actually. Uh, really amazing. I mean, I still feel very British. But the thing is, we can be half and half. We can. Uh, I I still. You can be both British and American. We have dual uh, citizenship. So, um, so I still feel very British, and I, I'm still working on the, um, uh, the the accent, as you can tell. And, um, and and I I but you know, this country has been so amazing that you know I just thought, well, why not? Why not? Also, also I own a house here, so you know I, I thought, oh, oh, okay. I'm I, I'm I'm bound to get in trouble sometime, and you know. Uh, I don't, don't want to be barred from coming back. <laughs> but does it make it easier in terms of travel going back and forth at all? Is there a benefit to to being a to having a U.S. passport in that with customs and things? Or oh, it, 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 you know what? Um, that's a really really interesting question. I've because we've been in lockdown for such a long time. I haven't been out of this country. I didn't travel out of this you country been at out all last year. <laughs> yeah, I've been out of the house. I've been out of the house for three years. Um, no, I didn't travel out of the country at all last year, but I did travel in between getting the citizenship and um, and COVID breaking out. And it was disorientating in a way, because I went to England and um, I got to England and, and presented my passport and they said, welcome home. And then when I came back to Los Angeles, I presented my passport and they said, welcome home. And I didn't know whether I was coming or going really. But um, but it is nice, and you know this country is very special. Um, I'm very lucky. It is. I mean, even for for all of its, you know, every nation has its issues for sure. But oh, I absolutely. Think America is unique in that it is made up of people from all over the place. Yeah. Here, whether they whether their families have been here for a long time or whether they're more recent uh, mm. recent immigrants, but there is this kind of vision about what it is about what america is and also the fact that most of us most of the time get on very well we we eat each other's food we have yes. we have conversations with our neighbors we be, you know we learn things from each other and overall the great experiment works yes you know absolutely Absolutely. Despite all the other issues that we have, and yes, we have racial injustice, and yes, we have this, and yes, we have that, and these things are not just American issues. They're and no, too. no. In fact, I was discussing that this morning, that very um, point uh, with my girlfriend, and we were talking about um, homogeneity, and I was asking why would people identify, for example, as Italian American or African American? Mm -hmm. Surely. Um, 
I, I said after, a, you know, with, with the generational change, they will be just American. And, and um, her observation was that it's quite nice to have these, you know, the, 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 this reminder of one's, uh, you know, ethnicity or where one came from and so on and so forth. And that is in stark contrast to where I used to live, which is Singapore, where they were basically very keen, the government, to um, uh, dispel any notion that one might identify as Singaporean Chinese, Singaporean Malay, Singaporean Indian. And uh, clearly, obviously, it's a different country, much smaller population and so on. But it struck me as interesting, um, an interesting discussion and, and um, an indication of how open you guys are to all of this stuff. And, um, you know, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Pleasure. Well, the other thing that's interesting is it used to be that in, say, my grandparents' generation, my grandmother's parents were Polish coming hmm. from the, the last vestiges of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, came over here. And for them, the kids were not allowed to speak Polish. The parents spoke oh. Polish, but they were very, very keen on saying, you are American you speak English. And that's a, that's, a, that's a generation of immigrants who are very proud of being here. And therefore you go forward as American. Whereas now I yeah, think because yeah. American culture is kind of non-distinct in a certain way. Right. I think that's what your girlfriend was talking about with regard to um, having celebrating the uniqueness that yes. celebrating the ancestral homeland Absolutely. Like, you know, Irish Americans, Italian yes. Americans, they have their own thing and and bringing it all together yeah. and, um, and celebrating it um, because we don't have a quote unquote national identity. I, yes. I have a friend who is a Swede who is living in Norway who said, she said, you, you Americans have this very strange thing. She said, you say that you are part English and part Polish and part Irish and yeah. and, and, but, and part German, but, but why are you not just American? She said, I am a Swede. And I said, ah, but your dad is from Denmark. And she said, yes, my dad is a Dane, but, but, but he lives in Sweden now, so he is a Swede. So the yes. idea of identification is not where you come from. The identification is where you are now. Yes, quite, quite, yes, yes. Which makes me um, with one foot in one camp and another foot in another camp, very confused. Yeah, it's very, it's very strange. Cause it, like, for example, there is, and you probably know about this having lived in LA for a long time is the San Gennaro festival, which happens in Hollywood every year, normally. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so we have Italian Americans coming to the San Gennaro festival and, and celebrating that and celebrating Italian American identity. And yet many of these people are either not Italian or they are descended distantly from Italians. Right been to Italy, but yet they celebrate Italian culture. Yes. And they yes. share Italian culture with everyone else. And that is distinctly American. That's that's what I when I think of America, it's 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 celebrating each other's cultures, eating each other's food, Absolutely. celebrating the diversity of 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 these disparate identities. 
Absolutely. It's a wonderful, wonderful place to live. We're very lucky. And um, my goodness me, you don't need any other reminder of how lucky we are to live in Los Angeles than to just look every day at the English weather. I think it's <laughs> snowing and I think it's snowing and raining at the moment in, yeah. in London. Yeah. <laughs> and Simultaneously. And so you you don't have any you're not yearning for old blighty. Um, I I I miss um, certain things, Dana. I would say um, the sense of humor, um, which is slightly different, um, but but not just different. Um, so so much a part of English life um, is underpinned by humor, basically because we've got this tiny little island, not enough room for all of us. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're teacher chow kind of like bunched up there and the, the weather's shit and the food's shit and the dentistry's shit. And so we've got to kind of like, you know, find some relief from that. And so humor is that great kind of, um, you know, uh, release valve, if you like. Um, and actually, apropos of that, um, I was having, uh, I hope this is not too tangential, but I, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day, because um, when it comes to the sort of differences between the psyches, you guys have written into your constitution the, um, you know, the pursuit of happiness. happiness. Um, we, as Brits, um, are deeply suspicious of, of, of uh, any 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 notion of joy, um, but particularly uh, that prescribed joy. And um, I think we see life as 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 somewhat of a battle. Um, I hope that doesn't sound too pessimistic, but but you know, as drudgery. Um, that may be overstating it a little bit, but we we, we certainly don't we we live, I mean, this may be why we drink a lot, we, we live perhaps for the relief from work at the weekends and, and, and those sorts of things, but we, we need humour to sustain us through the, the working week. We're not a traditionally optimistic people in the way that Americans are, I think. I think that Americans are by nature optimistic and the people who come here are optimistic. They're hoping mm. for the best. Whether that's misguided right. or not is a whole nother thing. <laughs> but it's very interesting that Thomas Jefferson, one of Thomas Jefferson's contributions to that fabled document is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He's not saying that you're happy automatically, he's saying the pursuit True. of happiness, good point. But, but that implies a fulfillment of some kind, a, a yes. fulfillment of purpose, a fulfillment of desire yes. what yes. nation has that written in to well quite documents? quite quite if you know you were to introduce uh, a bill in the british parliament um you know um uh, regarding the pursuit of happiness and making it a, a a sort of bedrock of british life people would look at you as if you've taken leave of your senses i think um they would they would uh, regard it with incredulity as such as our kind of somewhat depressed nature but from that comes humor and and you know hopefully kindness and some other things as well which um i hold quite dear plus a, an irre irreverence um in regard to people in authority 
positions of authority, particularly. Um, we, we, um, we believe the rules are perhaps to be uh, something to be used as guardrails rather than uh, necessarily something to be adhered to in all cases. And I think that's Americans actually have that same quality, that one about rules, because the idea is liberty. Yes. Give me liberty or give me death. It's that the right. idea of freedom, one's freedom is, is important beyond all, all other things. Absolutely. You know, that Absolutely. you don't want to compromise those freedoms because if you do, you might lose them. And God forbid, you might live under a monarchy again. Oh, my God, perish the thought. My goodness me. I don't know if you've been watching The Crown. It just oh, underlines yes. how dysfunctional that whole, that yeah. whole thing is. It really is extraordinary. What, what's your feeling? What is your, this is my chance to ask you this. What's your, what's your feeling on the monarchy and the future of it? Um, you know what, I, 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 you know, I, um, my, you know, my take on that is really steered by the fact that I know nothing else and, and grew up with it. I think it's fabulous. I mean, you know why? Because um, we, we get to see, you know, thousands of people coming into this little island and spending their money as tourists, particularly from America. Um, all because of this highly dysfunctional family of inbreds. And, uh, and it's just, it, yes, you just couldn't make this stuff up. Um, I, I think, it, you know, to be less cynical, I think the Queen has been an amazingly um, uh, steadying um, influence on, on British life uh, over the years. And we, we saw that not that long ago. Um, you know, she's one sort of bulwark, if you like, against um, the insanity of modern day life. And, and somebody has been there for such a long time in that position. Um, whether it's becoming an anachronism, I don't know. Personally, I regard the, the royal family and the pageantry that comes with it um, with, with huge nostalgia. And I, I think that um, it's something that we have to be proud of. Um, there are many in the country that I was born in who disagree with me, and and I understand their reservations. I I think I think it's great. Well, there is something to be said for continuity and tradition, right? And not to mention, it's kind of a living history lesson. All the pomp and ceremony and whatnot. And one might say, oh, all our tax dollars are going to this. But at the same time, I think Americans have have sort of a love affair with the monarchy, even though you know, 1776, <laughs> yes, yes. otherwise, you know. Yes, but I would say, I would say one thing, Dana, and I think this is maybe, um, uh, maybe, maybe this has been writ large more recently because of events, but um, the, the politicians in England are, are regarded very low, uh, very, held in very low esteem, generally. I, they're, they're right, down there at the bottom of the pile, along with journalists, in terms of the sort of people you would ever trust. And um, I think it's actually politicians, journalists, and prostitutes in, 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 in right at the bottom of the um, bottom of the table. But anyway, um, but you have, um, you know, above the political system, the queen and this traditional monarchy that represents the country's kind of continuation, it, things turning over 
as they should, regardless of the politics. Mm -hmm. The system here places, it seems to me, a lot of um, responsibility on the president to be both a monarch and a politician. Mm -hmm. And I think there is something to be said for dividing those duties. It is possible to be deeply skeptical and cynical, and perhaps one should be, of, of, of the political leadership, whilst at the same time deeply patriotic. Mm -hmm. And the system in England, one might argue, enables that perhaps quite well. Mm -hmm. Because Just a thought. Just a thought. Parliamentary, parliamentary democracy, and we, of course, are a republic, and we have the checks and balances with the legislature, the presidency, and the Supreme Court. So we have a checks mm. and balances. Mm. Um, and no monarch, of course, but we have celebrities for that. Yes. That the <laughs> yes. Celebrities are our royalty in America. Yes. I yes. I, I, like, I like the role that the Queen can play in unifying the country at times of real yes. um, distress. And, um, and she has been equal to that consistently on the years. Does she have any power at all? Is there anything that the monarch has that she does open parliament? There is the, the thing yes. scraping through the House of Lords and the House yes. of Lords. But Banging doors and things. Crowns and gugas and everything. But yeah. but isn't isn't that pretty much it? She has no there 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 are no powers that the crown hold. Um, that's that's true. Um, you know, one might um, uh, suspect that maybe um, the, the the monarch has influence in the sense that the prime minister meets with the monarch uh, as the head of Her Majesty's government. Yes every week but um you know anybody who's watched the crown will tell you that for example margaret thatcher and and, and presumably many before and since have um you know paid scant attention to um uh, the queen's um desires in regards to major areas of policy um i i think it's a, it's a largely ceremonial role now um, but there is, in times of crisis, perhaps something to be said for that. Um, as I say, there are many in England who would disagree with that, but um, I, I am one who finds her enduring presence quite reassuring. Mm -hmm. I'm sure Charles might beg to differ. <laughs> for her to kick off and she doesn't seem to be going anywhere soon. No, well, uh, that's right. And of course he, you know, um, he has helped focus the national debate, uh, you know, over the years in various somewhat, sometimes somewhat wacky um, areas. Um, but, you know, he's he's shown an interest and stirred debate in areas such as, you know, the state of um, 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 architectural trends yes. um, um, and um, organic farming, and organic farming, green, and green issues. Green. Green and issues, oh, yes. exactly so you know in that way one might argue um they can uh, wield some influence but um you know it, it, you have to look at the harry and megan uh megan yes. yes. thing and wonder if ah, the whole thing is kind of slightly starting to 
implode or break up, you know. Well, and, and, and good for them for deciding to have the life, making the decision to have the life that they want. Yes, exactly. To them. And I think that represents modernity right there. Yeah. Choice, whereas when Queen, now Queen Elizabeth II, she did not, it was not her choice. She no. became queen and she surrendered herself to duty. Mm. And I suppose mm. you could say that she is right. a, a living legacy of that, of duty. And yeah. or is yeah. that can be admirable in certain ways, especially for Americans, the idea is what? I don't have a choice? How <laughs> that, you know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I want freedom, like like William Wallace, like yes. Al Gibson and, and Braveheart. <laughs> yes, just don't go messing with our tea. That's all I can exactly. say. Exactly. Don't mess with the tea. And don't, don't mess with the tea. And, and don't and don't patri patri paint with face <laughs> blue. That would not. <laughs> but the Scots, so it's a whole nother thing. But I want to thank you so much for doing this because this absolutely was pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And um, um, yeah, you you are a natural conversationalist. This is a, a, a totally appropriate medium for you. I, I, I think it's fabulous. Well, thank you so much. Maybe I'll be a BBC, BBC correspondent one day when I grow oh, up. Oh, I, I, it's not all as, you know, it's not all as cracked up to be. I wouldn't, uh, I, I wouldn't do that if I was you. Oh dear, but thank you, David. Great pleasure. Thank you, David. And that was our friend, the delightful and adorable David Willis. I'm so glad that you were able to join us today for a little laughter, a little bit of uh, great storytelling. So thank you so much, David, for your time today. And Muttley, of course, for keeping an eye on things. And Jack the Cat. I hope you all are well. I hope you're taking care of each other, taking care of yourselves. And as always, I will see you on the other side. Thanks for listening.